Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Professor Peter Brooks is a research lead of Northern Health and has professorial appointments at Melbourne University in the Centre for Health Policy at the School of Population and Global Health and in the School of Medicine. Peter established the Australian Health Workforce Institute at the University of Melbourne in 2008 and is a frequent commentator on health policy and the importance of developing an evidence base in this area. In 2010, he was awarded membership of the Order of Australia for services to rheumatology as a clinician, researcher and academic. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. The ABC's Dr Norman Swan has said of your work in rheumatology that long before evidence-based medicine was the fad it is today, Peter was promoting it. What is rheumatology and how has it changed since you first became a doctor? Well, I've really seen the the birth of, of modern rheumatology because I got interested in rheumatology. I was going to be a cardiologist, actually, initially. Um, and my first papers are, are cardiology research that I did in Hobart as a, a National Heart Foundation fellow in the, in the 1970s. Uh, but then I met a, a visiting rheumatologist, a professor from England, Professor Watson Buchanan. In, in 1970, he was visiting Australia for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. And he and I got on very reasonably well together. And he said, well, why don't you come to Scotland and do rheumatology? So that's really what I did. Now, I went to the UK at a very interesting time because rheumatology up until the 1960s was very much associated with rehabilitation. And that was the, in a way, the rheumatology which covers all, if you like, musculoskeletal aches and pains, whether it's in muscles or joints or tendons or whatever. But the unit that I went to work with in the UK, in Scotland, Glasgow, was one of probably five units in the UK run by professors who had all were very keen on developing a scientific basis for healthcare, and in the context, obviously, rheumatology. And it was, you know, they had good clinical trials, they were doing immunology research, they were doing uh, other basic research on, you know, what makes, what's collagen made of and all that sort of stuff, biochemistry, biochemical work. And so it was in that context that um, the British Society of Rheumatology and Rehabilitation actually split and became the British Society of Rehabilitation and, and then another one, the British Society of Rheumatology. So I was there at that birth of that, which was really quite exciting. Now, a lot of uh, rheumatologists, of course, trained in the old-fashioned way, if you like, old-fashioned way of, of re- learning rehabilitation and, and rheumatology together, were uh, a bit dis- felt a bit disenfranchised. And so it was in that context that, that I guess I entered rheumatology and became particularly interested in clinical trials, making sure there was an evidence base, and... The context of of what Norman said was why in the nineteen in nineteen eighty I went to McMaster University in Canada, which was really one of the homes of of evidence based medicine, and I did part of a master of of uh, clinical epidemiology while I was there, and and really been interested in in that 
in the in making sure that a we have an evidence base for all of the things that we do in healthcare, but obviously particularly rheumatology, and uh, and trying to grow that evidence base, and and making sure that I think I think another key thing is making sure that we share that with patients because, you know, they're our prime audience, and it's really important that they understand the importance of of us uh, delivering to them evidence-based healthcare solutions, but also them understanding why we do that. Because really in a perfect world, all of us should have a responsibility, uh, responsibility to, to try and look after our own health. We probably, we'd be a bit, lot better off in a lot of the issues that we have in healthcare today. So when a patient comes to see you, what does the rheumatologist do to help that patient if they've got joint pain? Um, well, I think the first thing to do, obviously, is to make a proper diagnosis. As a specific disease, there are, there are over 150 types of, of arthritis, and more spring up every day as the medical professional love to invent, not invent diseases, but in a way sort of define what is part of life. But osteoarthritis, which is the degeneration of, of cartilage and joints, is something that we see it's part of getting old, it's, it's part of other things as well. But the most important thing is to make a specific diagnosis of whatever, whatever the problem is and, and, and be honest about that because sometimes, in, say, take a condition like back pain, undifferentiated back pain, we can't actually be exactly sure what's causing that pain. That's very easy to, you know, for an orthopaedic surgeon or a rheumatologist to show an X-ray and say, oh, you can see this little this little abnormality on the x-ray, and uh, that's obviously where the pain's coming from. Well, most of the time that's absolute nonsense because if you take a, an x-ray of me at the age of 77 or even you at, at your tender age, there'll be an abnormality. But whether that's actually related to where the pain's coming from is a totally different thing in many cases. And um, I've always felt that if you see a patient who's, as a general practitioner or a rheumatologist or orthopaedic surgeon, who's had back pain for, say, a few days, I've always thought that you've got about two weeks to do two or three things. Firstly, convince that patient that this is a problem that is, A, likely to go away, B, likely to return, because back pain is often, uh, is often a, a recurring condition, and C, it's not going to cause you to lose your job or be disabled for... Uh, the rest of your life. If you don't do, if you can't do that in about two weeks, then you're in real trouble. And the answer to the therapeutic pathway for the patient is probably not, certainly at that stage, to run in with surgery. And in fact, I would say, but then I'm biased as a rheumatologist. There are very few instances where, for back pain, surgery will really be of long-term benefit. So I think that's the way that you interact, and this happens in many other diseases as well. Those initial interactions that you have with the patient are really important. Your patient has to trust you, and this is for any interaction that you're having with a patient, because that's part of the therapeutic relationship that you have with patients. If a patient doesn't trust you, it doesn't matter what you say to them, they're really not going to believe you. And the best thing they can do in that situation is understand that and move to another doctor. Or if we were good doctors, we would probably say to the patient, 
And I used to talk to the students about this. I'd say, look, the key thing, never forget the therapeutic benefit of a second opinion. But if you're smart, what you will do is you'll know, you will know when you, if you've been looking after a patient for a while, you'll know when they start to be a bit worried about taking advice from you. And the key thing is to say to that patient before they ask you for a referral, to say look to them, look, you know, I'm a bit worried about this and I can't quite understand why, you know, you're reacting, your condition's reacting in this particular way. So I'd really like to, you to see one of my colleagues because the chances are that the other doctor you go, they go and see will say exactly the same thing as you. And if they're a, a good and honest doctor, they sh it's a referral. You haven't asked them necessarily to undertake ongoing care, though you might, but the patient will come back to see you. And if they don't, it's better they go to that other, other doctor because it's likely that they are, they're going there because they can develop a therapeutic relationship with that doctor. And remember, I grew up when you know, there were about two drugs that you had in, in rheumatology, aspirin and, and um, phenylbutazone, I think. Um, it was much easier that in those days. <laughs> and nowadays, what are some of the therapeutic options that rheumatologists have in their arsenal to help try and manage joint pain? Again, uh, looking at rheum taking rheumatoid arthritis and looking at the, at the change that, that that's had over my lifetime, it's just absolutely incredible because we used to put patients on, on gold and it was um, given once a week. And that, in fact, the first trial, it was one of the first trials that was ever con properly conducted, clinical trials in medicine. This trial was done in Glasgow in the, um, the war years um, and that showed that it, it really did work. And so I used to, when I was in Glasgow, I used to run the, the gold clinic. Patients really thought that they were, you know, invest we were investing in them or something <laughs> like that. Perhaps that's what made them better. <laughs> but now, you know, there are, there are, we've moved on to a whole range of other drugs, um, even drugs that were then used, methotrexate, back in the, uh, in the, 19s, uh, the 1970s when I first came back to Australia. We'd used a lot of it in Glasgow. And then uh, a number of other anti-cancer agents, because rheumatoid arthritis is a very, can be a very, very severe inflammatory disease. And then, of course, the biologics, which finally made rheumatologists important in a hospital, because biologics were and are still relatively expensive, like, you know, $20,000 a year for treatment and things like that. So finally, rheumatologists were important to uh, people running hospitals, because we spent their money on these uh, drugs, which of course are, are extraordinarily uh, uh, can be extraordinarily beneficial, and really do make a difference to patients. In the late 90s, bone and joint disease was being described as a pandemic of the future. This led to the World Health Organization announcing 2000 to 2010 as the bone and joint decade, for which you are Australia's national coordinator. Why did the WHO need to be convinced of the importance of bone and joint health and what were some of the achievements during the decade? I think a number of us of my generation around the world who were, who'd become very interested in, in uh, who'd gone into rheumatology in the, in the 70s uh, realised that A, we were dealing with, a, with diseases that had a scientific basis. They weren't just fleeting joint and pain, muscle and, and joint pains, uh, that they were very common and 
if you actually started to measure the, what we call the burden of those diseases, if you looked at disability rather than death, they were very important. And in fact, one of the other things that I guess grew out a little bit of the, uh, of the bone and joint decade, but again, I'd been involved with it from well, the, the mid-1990s, was the Global Burden of Disease Project, which was started by the WHO and really started to look at, at, at measuring health or ilth, if you like, of, of a community, was to look not just at who were, being, who, who were dying, but who was being disabled. Now, that was helped by a lot of other things because, of course, during this 40, 50 years of, of my journey in medicine, so many of the diseases that I saw as a young resident, you know, we, we used to admit 15-year-olds with leukaemia. You knew that they were going to die. Now, that's not so. Cancer's a chronic disease. It wasn't when I was a, a lad. So the focus, I guess, of, of medicine changed from, to a certain extent, from dealing with acute disease, particularly infectious diseases. We've had to get back to it in the last couple of years, obviously, with, uh, with COVID, and there'll be another one. But to more of a focus on chronic disease, you know, heart disease. I remember when I started... Uh, my residency in Hobart in 1968, there was a fantastic paper that had just come out saying that you, uh, if you had a heart attack, you didn't have to spend three weeks in bed. You could get away with just having two weeks in bed. Well, nowadays it's not even worthwhile having a heart attack because you don't get one day in bed. You're in there having a stent and you're probably home the next day, which is terrific. <laughs> but it's it sort of changed the, uh, the way that we think about uh, medicine and, and, uh, and the health and what the healthcare system has to deal with. So what did the WHO need to be convinced of to dedicate that time period to focusing on bone and well, joint health? Well, I think it was, it was specifically uh, the burden of these conditions where the data coming from the, uh, from the Global Burden of Disease Project in all of the countries of the world showed that um, musculoskeletal diseases, MSK, were very significant, uh, were in the, in the top five of causes of things that caused disability in that population, that it wasn't just the cancers or the heart disease. And knee pain, for example, still is today one of the most frequent causes of, of inability, particularly of women. Um, to uh, to mobilise, and so you can then start to work with, as as we did in the in the early days of the bone and joint disease uh, decade, with the um, international groups like the International Labour Organisation (ILO), which is about um, pushes things like um, health and safety in the workplace, but also obviously looks at the diseases that causes people to lose their jobs or being unable to be unable to to carry out their jobs and and look at knee pain again a shiny a great example of that and of course again in my lifetime just we've seen this phenomenal um, uh, change in, in 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 our treatment for particularly for hip and knee pain to see uh, joint replacement now as one of the most if not the most successful operation that surgeons actually carry out now. Again, like everything we do in medicine, it's important to make sure that if you're going to operate on a, on a patient with these conditions, 
you actually know that it's going to make a difference. Uh, and you're going to do all the sorts of things that are going to ensure that that patient is going to have a, uh, a good, um, a, a better result. And so as uh, rheumatologists and orthopods and, phys- and uh, physical therapists, nutritionists working together, one of the most important things you do is to make sure the patient's not uh, too overweight, perhaps even waiting a little while till they can get some weight off because we know that that's going to improve their, uh, their result. Making sure that they've had uh, a good exercise program, making sure that they're on a good diet, that sort of thing. And I think that's, again, one of the things that I think probably happened during the, the bone and joint decade was that we realised or we cemented the idea, and that's perhaps an interesting term to use in the context of hip and knee replacements, but we've cemented the idea of, of um, the team. So it's orthopaedic surgeon, rheumatologist, physiotherapist, uh, nutritionist working together. But who have I forgotten about? The patient. Patient's got to be part of that team too, because if they're not on side, then you're not really going to have the the uh, the result that you probably could that you could have had with a with with better team dynamics. And I, I think that's I think that's pretty good. I mean, I think most rheumatologists will you know have their surgeons, and I'm sure orthopedic surgeons are the same. They'll have their rheumatologists that uh, that they tend to work with, um, and. Uh, uh, and it's good for business and it's good for patients. That's the most important thing that we remember. So I think the, bo- the bone and joint decade was, was fantastic. And in fact, you're probably aware that we extended that from being the bone and joint decade 2000-2010 to then the bone and joint double decade 2010 to 2020. And now we're fixated on creating it forever. Um, so it's still an organisation. The organisational processes, whether it's run by, it's not so so active now in Australia, but uh, the bone in the US still very active. They have a very active website, but it's spread into other things as well. You know, there are lots of musculoskeletal collaborations, and you see that when you look at you know the major NHMRC grants that people get in this country, or uh, the grants that come through the European Commission, or the uh, the British um, uh, Medical Research Council or the, or the US uh, uh, Nas- uh, National um, Research Academies there, so and these are now you know we we we're down there getting we rheumatologists are in there getting really major grants. Uh, it's not just um, the basic scientists and the uh, and the oncologists, and I think that's been a really good thing together. So it's. And it's interesting looking at the, the, the bone and joint decade. If you look at the countries that were involved, and many countries around the world were involved, then they, had, they would have... And some did very well, others not so well. Some were well-funded by the governments, others weren't. I don't think we got very much money for it. But I think quite a lot of things happened, and we got musculoskeletal onto, uh, onto as recognised as, a, as a, a, a chronic disease... Uh, in Australia, things like that. So, um, I think those things were really uh, were, were really very positive. But when you look at the organisation, it's interesting that the ten- it tended to be one of the groups, either the rheumatologists or the orthopods, who would run the show in that particular country. US, it was, I think, to a certain extent, the 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 orthopaedic surgeons 
and I think in Germany it was probably orthopaedic surgeons, and uh, and in other countries in in Britain it was uh, primarily I think the rheumatologists here it may have been I think it was we we did I think we did reasonably well in terms of getting rheumatology and and orthopods to work together. <laughs> In 2011, the OECD published a report into unwarranted variation in healthcare use in Australia, and they suggested that we're doing too many knee replacements. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare reports that there was a 38% rise in the rate of total knee replacements from 2005-06 to 2017-18. Despite some of the achievements of the bone and joint decade, why are orthopods doing so many joint replacements? Is it as simple as an ageing population? Oh, look, I think that's a, it's a very complex question uh, and it can be asked of um, probably all the things that we do in Australia. Let's put it in context. Um, a, we have got an ageing population and as I've just mentioned, um, knee pain caused by osteoarthritis and, and, and degeneration of the knee is, is common. It is associated with, to a certain extent, by obesity and not uh, and people not exercising enough, and uh, and so so that that will tend to drive the, the the numbers agenda to to a to a certain extent. But the problem is that there's a general, more general issue that we have in Australia, and twenty percent of what we do in Australia is what we call low value healthcare, and it spreads into all sorts of things, whether it's uh, overuse of antibiotics in, uh, to, for viral infections. I mean, we know that viruses don't respond to antibiotics. And yet, um, how many people get, how many patients get antibiotics for, for what are viral infections? The overuse issue is really important. There have been studies in Victoria, for example, the OWL study, orthopaedic waiting list study, that suggested that if you looked at the orthopaedic waiting list and then you put patients on a a really good physio program and a nutritional supplement program, then you could probably put the time, put off the time at which they needed their hip or knee replacement for a, a couple of years, and if not longer. So there, that's important, really important that all of us should think about that. You know, we have to reduce um, the um, uh, if we're still running, and I think we probably are at 20%, this is not my data, it's, uh, it's very clear data out there, 20% of what we do in medicine is what is unnecessary. And think of that, think what that means to the workforce. We need 20% less doctors. You probably don't want to hear that, but, <laughs> but seriously, um, but we need, we need a help, we actually need a lot more health workers, not necessarily doctors, but we need, we're going to need a lot more health workers in the health system over the next 50 years as we cope with the uh, tsunami of, of aged care that we've got coming on us. What you're describing sounds like another pandemic of the future. <clears throat> and regarding the one of today, COVID-19 has seen more than 54 million telehealth services being completed over the last 12 months in Australia. And it is likely to have increased acceptance among both patients and healthcare providers in its aftermath. How should Australia embrace the telehealth revolution to ensure high-quality patient care? Well, I think that's a very interesting question, Liam, uh, and, and it's one that um, that I, I'm really passionate about. I, I really went to Queensland because there was an opportunity there to pursue telehealth research with uh, a number of colleagues and wrote my first telemedicine paper, I think, in 1998. 
The I think it's a it's a pity in a way that we have the term telehealth or virtual health, because to me telehealth is just another way of communicating with a patient. We can communicate with patients in many ways. Obviously, for the last thousands of years, we've communicated by face to face, but it's 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 a it's an oral presentation by them and by us. But the technologies that have been well, obviously, telephone was invented a long time ago. Uh, and, and in a way, G- GPs, I think, have used telephone uh, calls to patients telling them about their results and things like that for a long time. One of the sadnesses that, is that they've never really charged for that. And GPs are paid much less than specialists. So I think one of the real benefits of telehealth, or a benefit, side benefit of health of telehealth, is that GPs have finally been paid for something they do they've done routinely and it's very important you know why should you have to go back to see the patient to see the doctor just to get the result of a blood test to say that it's to be told by the doctor that it's normal or it's abnormal and and you but you can have that conversation with them and probably uh embed upon the patient or encourage the patient to make sure you know you say to them well look you know your cholesterol is normal but that's obviously because you're on a good diet and you and you're doing your exercises so keep doing those things or if it's slightly abnormal then you can give them some other advice so i think that's the first point um it's just another way of having a conversation with the patient you can do it by face to face you can do it by um, telephone you can do it by video you can send them a, uh, an email, you can uh, send them a text. All of these things are encar- should be encouraging interactions with the patient and helping them realise you're out there to help them and, uh, and hopefully keeping that trust going between you and the, and you and the patient. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is that I'm really concerned having looked to uh, well, I'll tell, I'll tell you. I'll go back and tell you a story. One of the things that was interesting, the Centre for Online Health in uh, at, U, at the University of Queensland, over those twenty years between when we started it in two thousand and one, two thousand and two, uh, and when uh, COVID hit, that unit worked very closely with the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane, where it was based, to increase the number of telemedicine consultations that were done to reduce the number of uh, outpatient attendances that were seen face-to-face by something like 30%. And that te- took a long time because it's it's a culture, it's nothing to do, I don't believe telehealth's all that much to do with the technology. That's simple, you know, there's all sorts of technologies you can use for communicating with patients, but it's a cultural thing. But t- you think about to reduce the number of outpatients by a figure of 30-40%. That's an enormous number of patients coming out, being looked at outside the hospital. And these were not patients coming from Mount Isa. These are patients who live just around the corner but are in a wheelchair, so they can't get to the hospital. I mean, it's crazy stuff. We have data to show that um, if you take most cities in this country, whether they're rural and certainly the major cities, and you're going to, you're going to, ta- you're going to spend a... 20-minute appointment with a, um, with, a, with a doctor, with a consultant in either a hospital clinic or in a private clinic, and you're lucky if you get 20 minutes probably, then it'll take you about two hours, two to three hours, and probably 40, 
50 bucks in parking fees and sometimes a fine. But your time, two or three hours of your time, you the patient's time. So if you ask patients about this, they're delighted. And I think we've got to, you know, that, and I'm very concerned because you can see around the places where one looks at telemedicine servicing um, that the, even now, uh, still in the middle of the pandemic with you know, less than, with relatively few people um, vaccinated, um, we're finding that doctors are wanting to, in hospitals, and I think in rooms as well, probably less so in rooms, uh, are wanting to go back to face-to-face -face presentations. And that's bad. It's bad for, it's bad for all of us. It's, it's, it's bad for patients. It's bad for, for hospitals, uh, you know, silly use of resources. And it's probably bad for the planet because the other thing is that, uh, you know, healthcare itself as an industry is a major producer of, uh, of, of a carbon footprint in any, any country. And so uh, if you've got people who are not travelling to uh, the hospital to see their doctors, you're, they're reducing their, their carbon footprint. So it's important to think of all of those things, I think, as we, as we move forward. And as I said, coming back to it, it's about culture. It's about saying, look, what is best for the patient? Not for me. Very easy for me to turn up at the clinic and see 10 patients. Fine. But... Um, what is, what is going to benefit the patient and their neighbour? And in this case, you can probably add, and the planet. The former Dean of the University of Melbourne Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences, Professor Richard Larkins, described you as someone who thrives on controversy and who isn't uncomfortable about making himself temporarily unpopular to achieve an ends that he believes in. If I see something in a health system that is broken, how would you advise me to go about fixing it? I'm interested Richard said that about me. Um, I can see, I, 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 I think that's probably true. I, I don't go around trying to make myself unpopular and um, I think probably Richard would agree with that. But I think it's really important that we speak out, we speak out about things that, um, that we think are wrong in the system. And, and, and those things should be driven not by oneself but obviously by... What's ha what happens to patients. We are spokespersons for our, our patients. Medicine, we're incredibly lucky to have done this wonderful course, medicine, and, and, be and become part of that profession. We're very lucky. We're, uh, we have patients who trust us, who tell us all sorts of things about their lives that they think we might be able to help with. And, that's, and we sh really should honour that. But if there are things that are interfering with what you as the doctor or any health professional think is good patient care, whether it's uh, the, the issue of out-of-pocket expenses, um, sometimes these are far too high. And uh, if that's so, we should encourage our patients to complain all sorts of, in all sorts of ways, but also look at, at, look at how we can create systems where... Um, you know, perhaps the professions themselves can uh, can get involved in um, in in uh, uh, self evaluation and self assessment. We've we've not been terribly good at that in the past. I think we're probably getting better with it, but uh, it's really important that we have those we have systems in place that that will protect patients. You should also be willing to stand up against things that 
other organisations in society uh, inflict on patients. You know, saying you can't have access to that drug or this drug. Uh, I'm talking about governments. There are a number of instances in this country where I think patients have been, or people, have been very, very severely damaged by, by government policy. Take people coming to this country or trying to come to this country from overseas. Take um, the people that we've, for all sort, in, in all sorts of ways, not necessarily totally us, but our, our systems have made homeless, have made redundant at work. We should have systems in, in, in our country that reduce to a very minimum those sorts of inequities in society. Society, unfortunately, will always be some inequity, but we need to make sure we reduce that to a minimum. And we've, in a way, I forget who it was now, that said that the you know really civilised society is a society that looks after its disadvantaged. And I don't think we always do that. And I can, we know absolutely that we're not the only ones that don't do the only country in the world that doesn't really look after its, its disadvantaged. Every country does this, but some probably do it better than others. Thank you very much for your time today, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.